You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Central Library is being renovated, and this is our temporary space um, for the next year or so. Um, we're really uh, very honored to host this um, launch event for Eric Goodman, and as part of our Writers Live series. And we thank you, Eric, for choosing to have it here with with us at the Pratt. And my friend Greg Wilhelm, and he's also Eric's friend is going to um, do the honors and introduce um, Eric. Greg is the founding, the founder and the president emerita, you're too young to, young looking for that, Greg, but, of the City Lit Project and, and a longtime partner of the Pratt Library. So, Greg? Thank you. <coughs> I have props. I'm going to stand up here. Can anybody hear me? I talk loud anyway. So, good evening, and thanks, Judy, and thanks to the NI Pratt Free Library for hosting this launch event uh, for my uh, friend Eric. I've known Eric D. Goodman uh, for 12 years. Um, and how do I know that? I know that because of the following evidence. Eric was part of the first group of writers that City Lit Project ever uh, enlisted as being part of a writer's workshop held back in uh, the fall of 2005 at the Creative Alliance. This is the first time. Eric claims that he might have met me the previous uh, fall at the City Lit stage at the Baltimore Book Festival, but Eric was one of the first uh, nine or ten writers to take a workshop uh, that City Lit was sponsoring and teaching at the Creative Alliance in 2005. What's that? There's not as much gray in that picture. Well, well, just you wait. There's not much length, gray, or anything. Um, and you get to keep all these. Um, the following spring in 2006, we actually hosted a, a reading of the inaugural workshops of writers also at the Creative Alliance. And this is a little flyer that we made out featuring Eric. And then there's Eric Goodman, along with some other people in the room, uh, who were featured at that very first reading. And I can pass these around while Eric's reading. So you can all see how much uh, we've aged. Um, then, in 2008, we actually published an anthology of all the writing that was done from the first couple classes of uh, the workshop that City Lit sponsored. And then there's Eric. Look at that one. Look at that shaggy man. Look at that shaggy man. Um, and this was actually at uh, the City Lit Festival in 2008, which we again hosted with the Pratt Library uh, at, at the adjacent building in the old Maryland room. And there's Eric uh, and me, looking both a lot younger uh, and definitely Eric a lot hairier than we are now. Then in um, 2011, Eric uh, published a novel, um, Tracks. 
and he promoted it at the City Lit Festival that year and really getting out there into the public with his work, just like every author needs to do. And meanwhile, over the years, Eric uh, attended the readings by the, uh, what I like to call the master writers that City Lit uh, featured, often in partnership with the Pratt Library. And this is a picture of Eric in the crowd listening to uh, George Saunders read in 2013. Um, so I will um, pass these artifacts around now, starting with Linda. Uh, of Eric Goodman through the year. Yeah, well, I didn't know I was going to have the, the large screen, so I went analog tonight. Um, and I share these old pictures of Eric, um, not to just embarrass him, which of course I meant to do, um, but to also offer proof that, in my opinion, Eric is the real deal. He takes his work seriously, he works hard, learns from others, and becomes an active part of the artistic community. So much so that Eric and co-curators started their own reading series called Lit and Art, which has been presenting writers, visual artists, and musicians since 2007. And right from the start, Eric knew the importance of giving back, which in my op uh, opinion is the, uh, is the uh, defines a true artist. Now tonight we are here to support you, Eric, and celebrate the publication of Womb, a novel in utero. Room, Womb has already been called quote, utterly unique, quote, wild, wacky, and engagingly original, and quote, an innovative look into the inner space. And you'll soon, soon hear why. So it's my absolute uh, pleasure to present um, not only my friend, Eric, but a hell of a fine writer, but someone who I think defines the hard work and the talent necessary to be a successful writer of fiction in this day and age. My friend, the author of Womb, a novel in utero, Eric E. Goodman. Thank you very much, Greg. I, I didn't expect all that. You did your research. So when I first moved to Baltimore, Greg was one of the first people that I met uh, in the local literary community. Um, and it was in large part due to Greg that I got involved. I came out of my writing Fortress of Solitude and started mingling with other writers and getting involved, um, which I recommend to anyone who is still writing in solitude because it makes a world of difference. Um, so thank you, Greg, very much for tonight's introduction and also for um, introducing me to the literary community all those years ago. We won't say how many. Well, you already said how many. We did meet at the Baltimore Book Festival. That's how I knew about the writing workshop. So... Um, Oh, and I also want to thank Judy Cooper for inviting me to have my launch here. Um, I'm a big fan of the Enoch Pratt, so I'm thrilled to be here as part of the Writer's Live series. So thank you. And uh, just to kind of back up Greg's words about the success, um, I, there's a whole sea of people here. I, I never thought I'd be speaking in front of this many people. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> It's hard to get people to support the literary arts, so I want to thank everybody who came out for, uh, for being here to support my writing and, and the, the library and the local uh, literary scene in general. So thanks for being here. Um, so Womb was born out of my desire to come up with the most unusual, weirdest, strangest narrator I could think of. Um, and uh, I don't want to set it up too much because I think the writing should speak for itself. But, um, but, you know, some books, I think, and some stories 
come, they start out with a, uh, a plot or with a character, but this one definitely started with an idea and then everything else grew out of that. And that idea was simply just um, what would it be like to, to see the world from inside in a whole new way. So I'm going to start with just the, uh, the first uh, short introduction here, um, which comes right at the very beginning. Imagine the kinetic spark of awareness, the jolting burst of heartbeat, the refreshing breath of air to virgin lungs. A moment ago, you knew nil. You didn't exist. Now you know all. You are here, and you want to stay. Sensations pulse throughout your fresh body. You can feel each individual cell strengthening the whole. You know what others have forgotten, and you want to share it. If you can communicate with others, you can save them from their follies. Save your parents and loved ones. Perhaps save the world. The knowledge is simple, but it is everything. How do you get to the crossroads where the connection vanishes, but keep that awareness intact so you can enlighten others? Welcome to my world. Before I continue in the book, I would like to... Uh, address what I consider to be the nutshell in the room. Uh, some of you may have heard that last fall, uh, Ian McEwan published his latest novel, The, the British Author, uh, and it's called Nutshell. It also is a novel in utero. Um, so I've been asked a few times whether that book inspired Womb. Um, no, it didn't. In fact, I was very disappointed when I heard about it, because what are the odds of after... Ten years of working off and on on this book that someone else, someone else with that reputation and caliber would come out with a, a book from the same point of view. Um, I do have proof that I started one before uh, Ian McEwan's book came out, uh, and I'd like to enter Exhibit A. This is a, um, a short piece of flash fiction that was excerpted from an early draft of Womb uh, that was published in the May 2008 issue of The Potomac. And you can find it online, so, so I'm not making this up. <laughs> this is called Small Places. He stretches, but only for a moment, and then pulls back into his comfortable arch. He rests in an embryonic embrace of himself, content within his well-fitted place. Mom thinks the house is too big. The apartment was smaller, more crowded. It was more cramped, but more comfortable. There was less space to stray, less room in the tiny apartment to fill with bitterness. The house they are in now, like the world around it, is too spacious to be comfortable. But the mortgage is more affordable than the rising rent, despite the compounded interest of bittersweet memories within it. He can feel what mom feels. He knows her thoughts. They are in his blood, as though he's a part of her. He is a part of her, after all. And he agrees with her. Not about everything, not about smoking or drinking, but he agrees with her about ice cream and pickles, about buttermilk and cookies, about sleep and soft music. He agrees that the house is too big. He hasn't seen it with his own eyes yet, but he feels her uneasiness within it, and he knows she would be better off in a smaller place. He floats in fluid, content in his sack. He is at the start of life not even in his own life yet, but he is wise, wise enough to know that he needs nothing more than the little bit he has to be happy. His own knowledge is something forgotten by people after they're born and grown, 
reared in big open spaces. He doesn't want a bigger place. Great comfort <coughs> rests in small spaces. So now I'll dive back into the womb here. Um, this is the first chapter from the final draft of womb. It takes forever to take a drink when you're speaking in front of a group. We're smarter than you think we are, we youngest of the young. We're more aware than grown-ups realize. We have an innate knowledge that adults are no longer consciously in touch with. Call it the collective consciousness, greater enlightenment, being one with God. Call it what you will. Humans are all connected by this common knowledge in the beginning. It isn't until later that the connection fades. If you're old enough to read this, chances are you're skeptical. But it is true. We may not be able to communicate our wisdom, but it's there as sure as I am here. We haven't developed physically, but our awareness, the essence of who we are, is something within our undeveloped bodies from the start. We're not able to walk, not able to talk. We can't use a fork or tell you what we want, but we're little philosophers. You'd be amazed at how much adults forget in the quest to learn. Degrees and decorations, the greatest breakthroughs in science and philosophy, these are faint echoes of what each and every person already knows at the start. I know things about myself that even my own parents don't know. I knew who I was before they'd even considered me a possibility. They still think of me as unknowing, unaware. They have no idea. I've observed, observed things about my parents that they don't know about themselves. For example, they need to relax. They're searching for some future life so intensely that they don't seem to realize they've already arrived. If I could communicate with them, I could help them, I think, give them some advice. In a few years, I'll physically be able to talk. I just hope I can keep the thread from weakening. The connection is more fragile than an infant's head and easier to sever than an umbilical cord. Forgive me if I come off as a bit of a know-it-all, but I kind of am. It's after we're born that wisdom begins to drain away. Soon after, we shed all but a dreamy shadow of our enhanced awareness. The more self-conscious we become, the less we aware we are of the universe around us. Not long after the umbilical cord is severed, so too is our association with the greater consciousness. As parents mold us, our own molds, the essence of who we are, loosen. We're instructed to focus on ourselves, and we begin to lose innate understanding of the universe. In becoming individuals, we shed the better part of our humanity. Adults have the best of intentions teaching us to fit in to a world where the self is more important than the community. As we learn to crawl and babble, to eat and spit, to walk and talk, we forget what we once knew, that the whole is more important than any piece. We become more attached to our physical bodies than our souls. As we enter the larger world, we exit a greater one. We no longer maintain the strength to meditate on the universal. Important ideas are lost in the struggle to suck the nipple, to grasp our toes, hold the spoon, dress ourselves. For some, it's a sudden loss. The stress of childbirth can be enough to vanquish all memory of previous existence. Great thoughts are often left behind in the womb, 
only to be expelled with the placenta. The blinding light of the outside world, this womb you call Earth, is shock enough to block out everything. The clamping and cutting of the cord can cut us from our memory. Intuition may be washed away as the nurse gives us our first bath. For others, the shedding is more gradual, forgetting just a little bit with each lesson learned, each skill acquired, every baby step taken, until by the time we're able to speak, we have no memory of what we wanted to say, just an elusive <coughs> inkling of something missing, like a dream you thought you remembered until you tried to put it into words. I know what you must be thinking, but don't be too quick to dismiss my words without your own personal memory of the womb. You must be enlightened to pass judgment on enlightenment. We lose what we know in the same way that adults lose their desire to play, to pretend, to get lost in imagination. Most adults have forgotten the immense joy of simple play, of pretending you were the hero or the villain, adventuring through the woods or hiding and seeking. You can remember doing it. You might even still play with your kids. You remember it was fun. But stop. Think. Is there ever anything or any time in your life that brought as much joy as playing make-believe with your friends when you were a child? And yet, no matter how hard you try, you'll surely find it impossible to recapture that feeling. Go ahead, romp through the forest and proclaim that you're Robin Hood, Matilda, Indiana Jones, Huckleberry Finn, or the hero of your taste. I suspect you're more likely to feel foolish than giddy. I'm certain that it's still there. It's all within you. All your memories, dialogues, and thoughts, they're within your mind. Everything you've experienced and known is recorded there, like outdated cassettes in the attic. It's locked away, and the map to the key's location is hidden behind that locked door. Once the door is sealed, it's next to impossible to budge it open. It creaks open on its own at times. Dreams drift from that sealed-off area. Sudden memories long lost come at odd times from the crack beneath the door. Look up at the ceiling while contemplating a subject, and a feeling or thought or memory might rise up. I'd forgotten all about that, you'll say. Perhaps the memory once rediscovered will remain yours. Maybe it will meander back into that locked-away attic of your subconscious. Stick with me, and maybe you'll recall your own memory of the womb. Whether it's at one month or one year old, we squander the greatest lessons, the one we were taught before the ones we knew before being taught. We just closed the doors and misplaced the keys at different times. I use the all-inclusive we. I'll resist the temptation to let go. I'm determined to get through childhood with my awareness intact. It's the only way to teach my parents and the world that a greater existence lies within us than without, that true enlightenment comes from helping others, not ourselves. I want to teach people to remember the important things and to let go of what doesn't matter. The truth is, this is what we have, here and now, and we should enjoy it, because it'll be over before we know it. When you know enlightenment, there are no longer any questions, no more worries or depression, only peace. The knowledge we have in the womb would make a world of difference if delivered to the outside world. I can feel mom restlessly striving for something she believes is out of reach. Like so many adults, she just never stops for peace and quiet. If she would stop and listen, 
she'd find that what she's looking for is right here within her. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Before I share my hopes for the future, I should probably tell you a little about my past. Mine is a short history. I haven't been born yet. It's the end of the first chapter. Thank you. So I'd like to, um, instead of reading on, I'll just uh, open up the floor if anyone has any questions about the book or about writing in general, or we can make it a discussion and just throw out your comments. Yes, David. Um, how about editing? Uh, have you been through drafts as someone else uh, yeah. sliced and diced uh, your stuff? Or? Yeah, I, um, I mentioned I've been working on it off and on for 10 years. Um, I, I tend to, and I, I, it's not like I'm working full-time on one book. Of course, you know, I have a family, a day job, plus I'm usually, I've got half a dozen books in various uh, condition, in various forms. So I kind of put things on a back shelf for a couple years and then pull them back out and work on it for a year and then put it back on the shelf. So over the course of a 10-year period, I would say I probably went through five or six drafts, rewrites. During that time, I've probably had about a dozen people, other writers, professional writers, you know, people on the literary scene here, review it. Um, and I, before I met Greg and got involved in the local literary community, I kind of had more of an attitude of, you know, they don't know the book as well as I do, so I'm going to go with my gut. But I think I've learned through experience that if two people tell you something doesn't work, if a sentence is a stumbling block, if they don't get a plot point, if they don't like a character, um, when you hear that from multiple people, you know there's something wrong with it. So I try to fix it and make it access as accessible as I can to as many people because I want a wide readership. So yeah, this has been... Part of it was, yeah. Originally... Um, well, maybe you can talk about how you, you started out in the third person. Well, I started out, it was a mixed bag. I started out writing each scene however I thought it felt best. So it was like half third person, half first person. And I thought that was going to be part of the shtick. It was going to be different and interesting because right. it was not conforming to one form. Um, but I, I got rid of that idea because I felt like it was, you know, who am I to throw that convention away. So right. I, I put it all in first person because I thought it was a, a, because of the perspective being so unique. That was kind of the challenge. I wanted it to be from narrated from within the womb. And so I, when I went to third person, I could be in there with him. But when I was outside narrating things in the outside world, it wasn't through his filter. So it was no longer all from within the womb. Yes. Um, so when I first came up with this, I was I had just finished reading uh, Jones. I mean, not Joan, Joan Silver inspired tracks. Uh, I had just finished reading uh, Alice Sebold's uh, The Lovely Bones, and I was, you know, still pretty pretty much a novice, so I was still blown away by a lot of things. But I was blown away by this idea of a narrator in the first line of the book explaining that she had been raped and murdered and 
the entire book is narrated from her point of view in first person, looking down from heaven um, at her family coping and at, at the, the murderer getting away with it. Um, and it just made me think, you know, what, what other weird, unusual narrator, narration hasn't been done? Um, and I didn't have to look too far because my wife was pregnant with our second child. And um, so I also had kind of a built-in, I didn't have to do quite as much research about the everyday mundane, I, I considered it mundane, you probably didn't, <laughs> aspects of, of uh, pregnancy. Um, so it was kind of a gelling of those two things, just that motivation to find a unique narrator. And uh, I couldn't think of anything that had been narrated from within the womb at the time. The closest thing I could think of was Tristan Shandy, which is actually narrated from somebody who's already been born, but he went back and narrated what happened before he was born. So this I thought was different because it's the now of the story is about three-fourths of the way into the book, and he's still in utero. Um, and then he goes back, so some of it's past tense, some of it's present. Um, but that was the inspiration originally. Yes. I'm curious about the voice also. The, uh, the, voice. the decision to make him so literate or uh, verbally sophisticated uh -huh. with his vocabulary. I um, I think the it just it kind of evolved that way. That's how I started. So I don't want to pretend there was some, like, oh, he has to have this kind of voice or vocabulary. That's just kind of how it started as I was writing and developed. And I felt like, although there have been some great books and stories written from a much <coughs> lower vocabulary, I felt like to say, to, to carry an entire book, he had to be able to yeah. talk. <laughs> so um, so I, I just came up with this, the concept, of, you know, which... I didn't come up with it, but I used the concept that um, that he's connected to this greater consciousness, so he has access to this greater knowledge, this common knowledge. He's this was I don't know if it was before Google, but it was before Google what it is now. But it, I kind of think of it now as he he was tapped into Google. If it's public knowledge, he he could access it, so he can read books. He can, but you know he might know the great works in the library, but he doesn't know what somebody wrote in class last week. You know, he doesn't know everything, but he knows the, uh, the general things that most people in a society know. And Are I think... Giving away to, to just know whether his parents ever, he hears them talk? Or oh, anything? he does. No, I can... There's a lot of things that are hard to talk about, I think, and nothing yet that's come up, but because there's a lot of, like, little twists and turns that yeah. um, I don't want to reveal, but... Yeah, absolutely. I, sh I should mention that. I think that's part of the reason the things I tend to read are these internal things because I don't want to give away some of the stuff that happens right. externally. Right. But I would say half of the book is outside of the womb, and he is narrating what happens to his mother, his, his father, and the people around his mother, things that he witnesses through her. Um, and he, you know, he can hear, he can, yeah. he can feel things, he can sense things. Um, and sometimes he can tap into her thoughts and tap into her feelings and her, her vision even. Like if she sees something vividly, he can sense that. Mm -hmm. so, so definitely a lot of the book, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of stuff happening outside of the womb. Mm -hmm. Yes? 
if you find yourself in any kind of tug of war with um, scientific information about development of fetus, giving your character a voice? Um, no, but I did have to go back after after the first draft and really look at that. Um, I feel like so he he's pretty much his now is is again like two thirds of the way the way into his pregnancy. So he um, he already has this voice now, and so most of what he narrates going back, he's narrating it from his now, um, and so I think that didn't come into play. Um, but I did have to go back and and kind of feed in some of the scientific stuff. And, you know, it seems like after the first draft, I mean, it was probably out there, but it's easier to find now with, with the Internet. Um, when I first wrote this, I was a little more in the dark. But with later drafts, there is a lot of research out there about, you know, stimuli and, and, and uh, feedback from, from uh, within the womb, that, you know, that they, fetuses react to a lot of stuff that, um, you know, when I started this, I... I thought a lot of it was more science fiction than fiction, and it seems that there is a lot of truth to it. Mozart. Yeah, I was going well, to say Mozart. <laughs> yeah, there's certain types of music that they tend to like, and certain kinds that they tend to not like. Brahms' Lullaby, according oh. to some research, babies don't like that, or fetuses don't like that. They, it's disturbing. <laughs> it's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? I don't want to keep. Oh no! I mean, first row. I, I'm. Um, I, I do a novel every year for NaNoWriMo, mm-hmm. which I heartily recommend. I, I can second that. Actually, this started as a NaNoWriMo. Yeah. Oh, it's a yeah. fabulous experience to just. Let it all come out. For those who don't know, NaNoWriMo is National Novel, Novel Writing Month, and the it's goal is oh, it's now well then it's InnoWriMo yeah. or something. Right? Uh, it's uh, I haven't done it in years because I felt like I ended up with too many bad rough drafts and not enough polished drafts. And to me, like like one month of the work was the first draft, and then yeah. nine years and and. Uh, yeah and 11 months was rewriting. But I was going to say that um, all those, I've done six now, and all of them are in my head in some part of it, but I'll suddenly have an idea for one of them and write write it down. Mm -hmm. And do you, did you do that during that, just little notes to yourself, or did you just sit down and work on the draft? Oh, yeah, I write... Well, you know, it's interesting. I write notes like crazy um, when I'm not writing on a book, working on yeah. a book actively. Um, so I have lots of notes, some of some of which I wonder if I'll ever get back to, but um, but I've got lots of notebooks filled with notes. Um, actually, this, the first um, few chapters, I mean, it's been rewritten significantly, yeah. but the first few chapters, I thought I was writing like a like notes. I don't do outlines, but I tend to write scenes like I might write 30 pages of scenes that I know are going to go somewhere um, and then later I'll when I start the book I put them in wherever or you know use them to to write Um, but the first 20 or so pages of this that I was writing as notes ended up pretty much being like I I just kept going I said oh well I guess this is it it also helped with my NaNoWriMo account to (laughs) just keep going but um, but yeah I write a lot of notes and um, I don't outline much, but I 
have lots of notes scattered all over the place. Sometimes I put them up on post-it notes and move them around and... and lose them. Yeah. <laughs> how, how soon in the process, how soon in the process did, you, did you come up with how you want it to end? Or how late in the process? How I wanted it to end? Yeah. Um, I would say by the second draft, I pretty much had it where I wanted it. I mean, not word, not the wording exactly, but what I wanted to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first draft, I think I had a completely different ending, but <laughs> ended up changing it. Um, you state in the, in, in the introduction that you read what the mission of this narrator is going to be to try and keep this... That was pounded into me after... Uh, a few workshops. Oh, okay. Just give go him a ahead purpose. And state it. It's not enough just to show what what he's going through. But let people know what his purpose is. Well, not always, that. but in this situation, I think. I like that in this particular case because it is so unusual, and and it had to be a purpose other than a selfish purpose. purpose. He had yeah. to have a reason. He wants to help other people. He wants to help his parents and. Right. So there had to be something outside of himself. Yeah, so that, I, I just wanted to, to say that I thought that was a really positive Thanks. Um, Thank you. Is that a hand? Yes, I can <coughs> do what I can hear Because um, I just started reading it. But to me, um, the, the beginning is very Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Uh, virtually verbatim in terms of it a collective consciousness um, predicated on helping others. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know there's 200 different sects of Buddhism, but it it was very Buddhist. And um, so you have a little Buddha there. Well, yeah, and I, I have to admit that's coincidental. I think a lot of Buddhism is universal truth, right? I mean, there's... Well, that's, that's and so um, my brother's a Buddhist, um, so I probably... Some of that's rubbed off on me, and I, I think I would. I think I've, I've read a lot of Buddhist article, you know, articles, not necessarily the actual transcripts, you know, the, the texts, but the baskets, right? Well, no, uh, I, but no, I'm part. My say they chant, and mm-hmm. you chant to tap into the rhythm of the universe. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's um, to to have that, and then the interconnectivity of everything. And um, so, having said that. Where um, we had this little brilliant little fetus, I think part of the, the your problem in quotes is that it's so unique, such a unique perspective that when another author comes out with it, then you have a challenge. I mean, if you're yeah. writing a vampire book, and uh, just, Twilight comes out, yeah, and, and, you're and, and, and then yeah. there's like a thousand vampires. Yeah, that's how I felt, and, and you know, and I think Greg and I have kind of talked about this idea before. I think it, it's kind of like learning a new word, somewhat. You you you've never heard it before, and then suddenly everybody's using it. Um, you know, I think often you think you have a brilliant idea, and then you find it everywhere else. You know, but I did feel like this was a little more unique than other things I've written, um, and I was I was upset. I love Ian McEwan. I think he's a great author. And I look forward to reading Nutshell. I haven't yet because I didn't want to be influenced by it in rewrites or in you know the last-minute revisions. But um, 
Yeah, that was that's. I felt like everyone's going to think I'm a copycat now, when when Nutshell came out. Yeah, and then if you look at the reviews last fall of uh, Nutshell, um, that's what they kept saying. Whoever thought of a a story like you know narrated from within the womb, this is so unique and original. Did you write uh, to them and say? I did try to write to some of the reviewers. Of course, they don't want to hear from a little writer, but I wrote to some of the reviewers and said, hey, in fact, a few reviews actually, this is you know, my scrape with getting into some of those places. They actually mentioned my book and a, another one that's also from Within the Womb uh, in Ian McEwan's review. Um, but yeah, I was hoping some of those reviewers would take a look at Womb too, but I think... It's already kind of a copycat book to no, them. No, maybe. no, I don't think so. <laughs> Nutshell was, um, in my opinion, very heavily dependent upon acquaintance with Tristram Shandy, so I didn't like it very much. Yeah. But um, but this one feels different, and the voice is totally different. So. Good. I, I think some of the things I've read in reviews, though, it sounds like we had a few similar... Scenes. How can you help it? Yeah, I mean, you, like things that you know. Oh, I, should I put this in there? We all think then? about you know, what it must have been like. Yeah. But back to just um, finalizing my point. When if you wrote about vampires, and even if there was Twilight, but before yeah. there was Twilight, there was Dracula. So I mean, there's been a centuries and centuries of of vampires, and um, and here I think part of your problem is your Uniqueness. Yeah, yeah. If I wrote another story, a story in third person, no one would say, right, right. "Well, he wrote a book in third person." Right, right. You copy him, but or you wrote about <laughs> childhood trauma or this sure. or that. Yeah, but having something out of the ordinary is going to be linked to the other things that are out of out of the ordinary. When yeah. did you publish this? Uh, this was published last Tuesday. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Okay, so. What kind of response? Any reviews yet? Or? Uh, a few, a few reviews. Not as many as I had hoped. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of lot of review copies in circulation. So hopefully some yeah, I mean, more will come. Two? So far, it's been mostly positive. Uh, one one review in UK was mixed. It had some positive things to say, and you know some. But they also panned uh, Ian McEwan's book. So I felt like I was in good company. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, the most of the reviews I've seen. Um, the, the few I've seen have been positive. Where has it been reviewed? Uh, Ragazine, The Potomac, um, Litro. Um, can you think of any others? I was going to say Litro, that was the one you mentioned. Library Journal is one of the ones that mentioned it with Ian McEwan's book, um, so I felt like there was some well, association good. at least. But um, I know that there's others coming out, I've been told, but it's just out with the next issue of a journal, mostly in literary journals. Um, yeah. And to what extent, who published it? Merge Publishing. It's a small publisher out of the Finger Lakes, uh, upstate New York. The publisher's sitting right behind you. <laughs> this uh, Don Stevens. And today, um, do you, uh, what kind of expectation do you have of your authors to set, to promote the book? Well, I have to say, I haven't been, you know, Merge hasn't been doing this for very long, but he has been the most active uh, in helping with the promotion. He's like, if, we, if I had more like, writers like him, it would be, he's been a dream to work with as I, far as the promotion I, part. 
But uh, I probably push too much sometimes. And though. Stuff like that. I think next to him and his wife, I've seen their books so many times <laughs> and so many stages. And every time we came back, it just got better and better. And at one point, we were just like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think <laughs> you're... It's done. And yeah. it's hard. It's really, really hard to say it's done. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, been, so... <laughs> yeah, he is a perfectionist, but he's been so influential, and he's had a lot of ties, you know, uh, with, uh, with people in uh, the literary world, especially in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's been great working with him. And it's continuous. I mean, we're, marketing doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just because it just came out, Reviews, more reviews will come, and then you know, more interviews, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think even you've probably uh, looked online before and said, again, another promotion, another advertisement for win, or you know, another post. I was thinking, you know, Baltimore has a, uh, a tabloid newspaper, sort of like the city paper, that's for. Children, Baltimore Kids, I think it's called. Yeah, I know. So I, I was thinking that it's a whole different way to to market it, but it would be extremely interesting to a lot of prospective parents and parents, you know. Oh, I see. To mothers. Oh, and there's Baltimore Child too. Baltimore Child, yeah. yeah. Baltimore Child. That's a good yeah. thought. I have had a few pregnant reviewers that have said they really, I mean, that just got a copy in the last few days that that said they were really interested because they were pregnant and oh, good. and good. so they would have a different perspective. So I'm interested to see. Teachers too, maybe. I, at first I thought you were talking about the kids. Like I, We'd have to do a censored version of it. They're, it is rated R. That's one of those different avenues that we usually talk about, like marketing. I do a lot of online digital marketing, but it's a market to expected mothers. Yeah. There used to be a magazine called Mothering. Is that still published? And that's in a lot of doctor's offices with things that people would. I think it's still around. Yeah. All the doctor's offices have all the old magazines. We could do a reading at a BGYN. Nothing else would be going on here. What? Nothing else would be going on here while you're reading. Well, if, if, if people start screaming, I won't think they're cheering about the reading. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you did put you right nice. to sleep. <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask a, a process question, I guess. Um, I've discovered that my uh, second, third, and fourth drafts are always better if I type them over from the beginning. And correct them and then type it over because stuff occurs while I'm typing it. Yeah. And I think editing just on your original copy and cutting and pasting can make things very difficult, but how? I've done it both ways, um, and because I usually do more than a couple drafts, usually the first rewrite at least, I end up retyping it completely. Mm -hmm. I'll print out what I have and work from that. Um, sometimes that allows for too many tangents and then I end up not getting back and then I've got two versions and I'm trying to decide which one I like better. So, twins so next time. Yeah. <laughs> so um I but usually a second draft I do retype it. After that I tend to revise as I'm typing. Yeah.
time to sell books. I think so. Books. Yeah. I guess. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks again for coming out. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.